0: There's a massive trend in esports and gaming right now of these new companies that are emerging that are providing some great value, which is creating platforms. And I'm not necessarily talking about new social medias, but I'm also talking about something that improves everyone's experience and I've got AJ on today from Live, the founder or co-founder and CEO, and we talk about his platform, which is enabling VR content creators and streamers, and it's making lives better for the viewers, the content creators, the developers, the headset manufacturers, and for him as a company. So without further ado, get straight into the podcast. Enjoy. Thanks so much for being a listener of this podcast. We've created it really to help increase information sharing and understanding of the esports market. If you'd like to help us out, feel free to leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you do and make sure to share this with your friends. Hopefully we've been able to provide some fantastic information to you and a bit of a learning experience over this period of time, whether you're looking to skill up, enter the industry, or you're just looking to monitor to see how things are going. If you'd like to put yourself forward as a guest, suggest any others or ask any questions feel free to connect with us at BigEsports.gg or on any of the social media platforms at BigEsports_GG. underscore GG.
1: We're live, Dr. Doom, here we go. Yes, finally. The rain didn't stop us.
0: <laughs> you can't even hear it anymore. It's like like I said in my reply to you. If you, if you look closely, you can see my employees banging pots and pans behind me like it doesn't really exist. There's no rain whatsoever. <laughs>
1: That's lovely. I love it.
0: It was crazy, man. We were talking, like for those people who are just tuning in now or listening to the podcast, we were talking about this beforehand. It's like, that, it's like that massive raindrops that you get in tropical places, like up north in Australia. They're huge. Sometimes like here in Melbourne or where I grew up even further down south in Tasmania, you can walk outside for like 10, 15 minutes and not even get wet because the rain is just like drizzle and even like the grass doesn't get watered and such. But the rain that I experienced just now here, like one of them actually knocked my eyebrow hairs in front of my eye just by hitting it. So it's like one tiny step away from hail.
1: Very thick drops.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Thick drops. Well, We've got a lot to talk about, and we already started talking pre of this recording, so we may as well take a step back. And can you, for the people watching and listening to the podcast, just tell a little bit about yourself and your history and and how you came about to be sitting in front of us today?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm Dr. Doom. Um, I'm the janitor at Live. That means I do everything that's not code-related, um, making sure everything is clean, all the cogs are running the way they should. Um, I have a background in competitive gaming. That's really how I got started in, in gaming in general. I used to play. I say competitive because back then, there wasn't really a professional scene the way it is today. Uh, but mm-hmm. I used to compete in uh, Marvel versus Capcom primarily, uh, but also a little bit of Street Fighter and a lot of World of Warcraft. Um, and it's in Marvel where I got the name Dr. Doom from because my main character was Dr. Doom. Um, I've been in with live. We started live in 2016. The idea back in the beginning was that we wanted to host a show on Twitch where we would play VR games, but we would play them competitively. We kind of wanted to show people what a future of esports could look like when everyone and their mother has VR at home. Um, yeah. and that quickly resulted in us realizing that there aren't any good tools out there for content creators to create content in the first place. Uh, so that's really what we started out. We started out as a tools provider. Uh, Building initially tools for content creators to create what we call uh, mixed reality capture, piggybacking off the work of SteamVR and the folks at Fantastic Contraption uh, with uh, Northway Games. Um, And then we built an SDK for developers that allowed their games to be streamed uh, through Live or with Live, or rather captured with Live um and now we're uh, working on some other really cool stuff on the platform side that i think we'll get into a little bit later that's pretty much us we've been live since march 2018 we've driven about a billion and a half views to our videos and our creators videos so far so many of our creators have gone from being a really small on youtube and twitch to having really sizable audiences um, and our next step here is trying to figure out what's, what's next for live streaming for us. You know, we, people are now watching these videos. How do we help our creators go further and do more with those eyeballs? It's like
0: the stock standard of, of how, you know, they say the classic entrepreneur starts a company, right? It's like you have a problem with painting you personally, so you go out and fix it. And now you're four, you're four years into fixing it. And you yeah,
1: still go. Yeah, for sure. It's funny because we when we started out, we were actually, it was kind of hard to convince people to come and change their workflow and use a new tool. And similarly to developers, why would they integrate their SDK? We had no proof points. So our start was actually by streaming ourselves on Twitch. And for a while, I would say we were for a couple of months at least we were the biggest stream in vr on twitch which doesn't say much at the time because there were like five streamers right maybe ten streamers um with a sort of 20 people concurrence concurrency on the viewership side um but that was sort of the way that we got into streamers by saying look we have some really cool tech we're using ourselves because we think it's great content um if you're interested hop into our discord which has been a huge growth hack for us and we should maybe talk a little bit about discord as sort of a a gold mine for marketing um and that's how we grew organically and we've we've spent zero dollars on marketing today, so it's all really been organic and through the community.
0: Yeah, well let's let's chat about Discord. I mean it's a pretty it's pretty unlikely for for traditional people. You know, I, it, like even to push that further. I read an article today about how Adidas is using WhatsApp as one of its mm. main marketing tools going forward. So yeah, let us know a bit a bit about how you use Discord and build a community.
1: So I think one thing I don't want to do, is, which I, I see a lot of people do, is sort of think back retrospectively and then make it sound like it was this planned genius idea. Because it wasn't. It was really more about, we are on Discord as gamers, and our friends are on Discord. And so let's just yeah. do most of our internal comms on Discord to be closer to the platform we use every day anyways. That was the initial idea. Um, so we have public channels and private channels on Discord. Private for the company, public for the community. Um, I think what we see with Discord is it's sort of, um, I think people nowadays kind of love micro-communities. Because places like Facebook and Instagram, are so they're so noisy um, and they're so saturated that people are looking for a more meaningful connection. And Discord kind of gives you that. Discord gives you really two things. It gives you that higher rate, rate, rate of in- intimacy. But then it also gives you this... It makes you feel less like a company. It makes you feel like a person or like a, a group of friends. And I think that's the place where, especially... more corporate companies we're not very corporate at all At live like we're very approachable we're considered as um sort of the approachable darling in the community um but i think there's a place for companies to sort of lower that barrier of this is an objective company that has an official support line something that's a little bit more human i think that works really well for marketing nowadays because people look for that authenticity
0: Mm. And I guess that it also explains, like, like in regards to Facebook, the rise of Facebook groups. You know, I, I don't talk about it too much, but I run a really large Pokemon Go Facebook group, but it's hyper specific, like it's Pokemon Go Melbourne, because you know if you're looking for where to catch the best Pidgey, you know, Pokemon Go Global is not going to help you because you're not in the Philippines. It's almost trying to find a place in London, but yeah, that community is so active. It's got like. You know, I don't really do much work in it anymore. It's just the moderators that, that manage that. But it's got something like, what are we at now? 34,000 members, 26,000 or 28,000 monthly active users. Wow. And it's the same thing. Like you were saying, it's they still act like a tight-knit community. Or even any other Facebook groups that I have, I'm in, a part of a really small car club, which is just guys that like to do, you know, stupid things to stupid cars that make them barely legal um, and somehow operational but look cool <laughs> and give you street cred. And you're right. It's, it's about building like that community for a purpose right where like you're saying everything's so noisy these days that someone on instagram might be following you know blue beauty vloggers at the same time they're following fitness people same time they're following their favorite sports person and there's all these different kinds of information coming at them but when they come to your discord they know exactly who they're talking to and what they're going to be talking about
1: yeah i think it's a problem that stream providers or platforms are going to have to face really or at least own up to really time soon which is you're watching shroud and he's got thirty thousand people in chat how like the, the the function of chat breaks really quickly after five hundred yeah. people, a thousand people. So if chat isn't there to facilitate communication between you and your viewers, what is it there for? Well, today it's just sort of a it's like a meme machine, right? It's just spam stuff in there and hope to be seen. Um, yeah. But I think like self organization tools for viewers is going to become increasingly important. Um, as these streamers get bigger and bigger and lack the tools to interact with their audience. And it's, a, I mean, just interactivity in general is a huge, huge uh, topic that we can hop into eventually. But there's a lot to, a lot of work to be done there. And by the way, the other thing that I think is really interesting is you on LinkedIn. Like when it comes to authenticity, and we see this quite often, sometimes it's, it's kind of surprising to some people why some people get more popular than others. And I feel like no matter how you turn the sandwich, it's always boils down to, authenticity and i think that's what makes you really great on linkedin is you not only have sort of the history to back up what you're saying but you come at it from a very um uh conversational approach i don't feel like i'm reading a blog post i feel like i'm reading someone speak which is really powerful yeah and and i think why i reached out to you in the beginning way back
0: yeah and and i think like 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 first off thanks for the compliment for sure and and for second i think it's a it's kind of like projecting my own learning into things a lot of the time. Like I think, what would I want to read? And that's what I tell people. And that's why I try to take a, yeah, I try to post an article and just post a summary. And that's why some people say they follow me because they're like, I don't need to click on the whole article because you just tell me, you know, what I need to pay attention to. And I think it's being open and honest with yourself that you don't know everything that's happening. And yeah, like you said, just just trying to share that information a lot of the time, which works. And I think it's it's hard, especially in today's economy, because you don't get as much clout you don't get as many followers and likes, but the people that you do get are much more quality. So you'll seldom see me posting those stories on LinkedIn that people do where it's like one line per paragraph kind of thing, because those are the ones that get the most engagement. But what I found and I think I'm pretty sure I made a video about this, that my overall reach for LinkedIn over the past two months, it's been quite significantly down on what it was the two months before that. But the quality of connections and the quality inbounds has been, has been significantly increased where people are reaching out to me. And for me, like LinkedIn serves as a revenue driver for my business and creating contacts. So by me sharing this information for free, you're able to get it back in inbounds, whether it be through potential clients or people to work with or, um, you know, founders that are looking for advice that will come to you when they're a billion-dollar company for, you know, some work or when they secure funding, they come to you to do their marketing for them and things like that too. So. It's hard. It's like I, I struggle a lot and I find it really hard to play the long game, but now it's starting to pay off. And it's been the same thing for me with my podcast and the LinkedIn Lives as well. You know, talking with Nick, who's been working with me here at, at Big since uh, we renamed to, to Big Esports and, and picked up a partnership, et cetera, and hired him full-time saying, do I keep doing this podcast? You know, the, the podcast gets a few hundred listens per episode and then we started doing LinkedIn Live and, you know, when that was the big thing, we were peaking at 100 concurrent, but now we're, you know, 20, 30, 15 concurrence, you know, is it worth doing? And I think the answer is yes, but you still have to convince yourself along and you need to teach yourself like what are the metrics that actually matter? And the metrics that matter aren't how many likes you get on a very you know, self-serving post where every paragraph is a line and you just talk about how happy you are to be alive kind of thing. But, you know, about the 20 to 30 likes that you get on a serious post, which is giving people an update on your company, which is providing people with like inherent value or things like that. You know, sometimes I'll post something soppy like I did this morning because I've been feeling a bit burnt out. So I posted something about, hey, if anyone else is burnt out, reach out. But yeah, besides that, I, I would say that you're you're on the money, I think, and and they these are the kind of people that I tell other people to follow as well, like Herb May, for example. You know, I don't think you will get anyone else as authentic as Herb May, the man who wears a backwards flat cap for 99% of the time when he's alive. I'm pretty sure he wears it while he's asleep. You know, he's he's always going to be really open and honest in the content that he shares too. But also remembering, like someone asked the question today, you know, how do I connect with? with people it always seems to be the minority of people are sharing information on LinkedIn but that goes the same for every community right like the minority of people have the majority of followers on say Twitter and such too so you're not doing yourself a service if you're only following the people with two million plus followers on Twitter and trying like you said to talk to Shroud when he's got 15,000 concurrent people watching him where the chat's just screaming up sometimes it's better to literally just add people and and reach out to them directly you know like you and I did together and, and strike up a chat
1: yeah I think entertainment I I, I would, unfortunately I think you we class people like you in entertainment because it sort of follows the same distribution curve but it's very top heavy. You get that you know 25 of the top streamers drive over 50% of the minutes watched on Twitch and that's the same everywhere. Uh top actors, top musicians it's just that's how 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 groups form essentially. Mm. It's an interesting field.
0: Yeah, so Let's get the topic back to you. Before we started this stream, I gave you a theory and I'll I'll give it again here live. So... For me, I feel like virtual reality has been really top down, has been pushed down. So for a long time, I think about the 10 series NVIDIA graphics cards when they first came out, you know, 2016 or so, you know, every graphics card was VR ready. It was slapped on the box. Every power supply by Thermaltake or Corsair was VR ready, even though a power supply doesn't actually process anything. For those of you who don't know, it literally just gives power to the other components. Every computer case, which is an empty hunk of metal, VR ready. Every laptop that has a 1070 or above VR ready. However, for me, I'm pretty we classify myself as a pretty hardcore gamer and a lot of my friends too. None of them actually have virtual reality headsets, bar one, maybe two out of the twenty or thirty I would call pretty good friends. So I feel like a lot of the time it's the company saying, you need hey gamer, you need to care about VR, you need to buy VR, but no one's been adopting VR. So, what's you know, what's what's been the the holdup for the last four years or so that you've been professionally in the industry?
1: Yeah. So, I think one of the things you said is one of the keys, which is people seem to think, and understandably so, that the people buying VR today are the hardcore gamers, and I don't think that's true. I think the hardcore gamers still love to play their CS:GO and their Fortnite, and you know, I play Path of Exile. Um, the people buying VR today are the technologists and the the sort of the tinkerers the people who live love gadgets mm. um and if you look at our community for example it's very very diverse it's not it's not very like i wouldn't call it very typical gamer um so that's one thing i think gamers nowadays they need something some big ip and a lot more comfort to hop in and do um sort of buy into vr completely then there's a whole range of other issues with vr right like things are just going to solve get solved with time uh, one thing is comfort i just you know you wear a headset for an hour and you start feeling it uncomfortable pressures sometimes and and people talk about you know you can adjust the headset yes you can get a better headset like the index with better face cushioning and better adjustment mechanics absolutely but you know by and large it's still largely uncomfortable over time then there's content you know we don't really have any big big ip or you know games that take 30 40 hours to play through in vr which again with the comfort issue probably not what you need or want anyways right now and there's no market sustain a big multiplayer game in terms of concurrent players so some of the games that we've seen perform the best are indie games that sort of focus on one really strong mechanic like beat saber um tipitat from the vr fund who is someone i encourage you guys to follow if you're interested in vr as a market uh, he has some really insightful insights he just released a post about uh, developers making over a million dollars selling VR games, and it's it's by and large indie games. And then it is, I think it's like twenty-ish games. I'm not sure. Um, worth linking yeah, okay. at some point. I, I can find it later. Um, so there is a growing market there, and we what we see on Steam VR um, and as a some some proxy to Oculus as well is that the graph has been kind of going up like this. Um, so we're seeing more people coming into the market. We're seeing more content developers make good ip so ubisoft is really invested in vr valve is obviously coming out with half-life alex which i think is going to be a cornerstone and i hope it's going to be a cornerstone and sort of what vr can do and what kind of companies are involved in vr um, and then we need to give it three to five years to get to a form factor that everyone's really comfortable with um, that is as easy as me sitting on the pc right now and as comfortable as me sitting on the pc right now
0: yeah i think it's I like what you said and you know it rings true with a lot of the industries I've worked in before about the marketing, not understanding who the who the market really is and who the end user really is. And like you were saying that, you know, for me, I come from a competitive background, so I'm very unlikely to use something like VR. I'm more likely to play Dota 2, which is a competitive game, but I play it casually, or CSGO, which, which used to be the game, you know, that I last played, semi-pro, you know, if you, if you will. And that makes perfect sense that, you know, you're marketing towards the hardcore gamers and throwing red or RGB LEDs and such at them, but it's really still the early adopters, the tinkerers, and people that like a bit of weird stuff. That will um yeah ultimately pick up VR. So the the other thing you know that I wanted to, to learn from you especially about is the rise of in and, and before we get into like your product specifically, but the rise of content creation in VR in general. There are like. If if you're doing content, especially about Beat Saber on TikTok, that's a guaranteed, I feel like it's a guaranteed twenty to 50,000 followers. Mm -hmm. If you're doing virtual reality content on YouTube, looking at a YouTuber like Josh Dubb, who lives in Australia, you know, he went from 300K to a million to two to three million in a period of about, I think it was somewhere between 12 to 18 months. And, you know, he was sitting pretty you know sitting pretty at two to three hundred k not seeing much growth so you know that's been some massively exponential growth you've been seeing vr chat has been huge for relaunching people like um hey on b for example another awesome aussie content creator who was you know feeling pretty stuck at at at, you know seven hundred thousand but now all of a sudden you know exploding too so does is that because of the content that's available say beat saber vr chat which i mentioned is that because of the creators themselves, like B or Joshda being awesome, or is there something else in play or a mixture?
1: Hmm. So I think it's taking a step back. A content creator's job is to drive eyeballs, and it's easier to drive eyeballs when you're creating content around something, not everyone else is creating content around. Otherwise, you're sort of fighting for the same eyeballs in a way, which is why it's so hard mm-hmm. to break through on Twitch as a Fortnite streamer today, right? Yeah. Um, so in the beginning, I think companies or sorry, people streaming games like Beat Saber or creating content around games like Beat Saber saw a lot of early growth. Uh, one of our first users, our very, very first email submission, Rage Sack, um, is now one of the biggest VR creators and streamers. Um, and he was the one who uh, he built. he. he he created the Darth Maul mod, I guess. So he was the right. first guy to glue two controllers together and do it on stream and drew mm-hmm. giant audiences to his to his work and has spawned a bunch of people doing it now, too. Um, so I think when it comes to it today, Josh Dobb gets views because he's just hilarious. And he's found a, a, a band of pirates that do it with him that are all hilarious, like Re-Kid. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's less about VR and more about him as a creator. And I think Nacy is uh, another Australian lady who streams Beat Saber, who's huge on TikTok. For her, it's just really high production and she has a very specific look. So it's it's easier to spot her in the crowd with her purple hair Mm. and very specific stream setup. Um, So I think it's more about the creator nowadays than it is about the game. Um, I also think as more people come in to play VR, they'll open their eyes up for VR content. For example, I tend to watch games that I've played or play. Um, so I like mm-hmm. to watch Dota 2 and League. I also like to watch competitive shooters because that's sort of my background. And, of course, Street Fighter tournaments. Um, I don't really go and watch games that I haven't really had my hands on. Um, so that's going to improve with time. And then I also I think there's something to be said about changing the consumption experience for viewers. So, you know, we're kind of used to going to a stream and watching a stream. Uh, but the question we've asked ourselves since last year is what about if that isn't the final goal what if going to just watch a stream isn't the best experience you can have Uh, in other words what if you can impact the stream what if you can interact in the stream participate in the stream um, Mm. or just sort of mess with your favorite streamer in funny ways that is sort of content creation in and of itself because you're getting people to react and that's always really it's it's always a really big dopamine hit for people who watch their favorite streamers
0: yeah so i guess that's I mean it's a perfect segue. Hey, it's a perfect segue into your company. It was intentional. And, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> you got that real Doctor Doom going on now. Okay. So like and you know, this is once again, this is a thing I ran over with you that that was a theory that I would love to lead into to a long conversation from you about, you know, how your company works and, and why and what value you provide. But there's been an unlimited amount of companies who've come to me in LinkedIn, people wanting to start startups and they're starting platforms which are requiring people to leave what they're currently doing or change their habits in in a rather significant way, whether that's a social media platform or something else, social media being the most common. What I like about you and, and what you guys are doing and what I'm suggesting a lot of these platforms to do is be what I guess I could call a plug-in company, which means that nobody's required to leave what they're currently doing or alter in a large way to use your product or service. So, and, and everybody who's using it gets value throughout the chain. So for you, the streamer, it makes sense for them to use it because it not only allows them to stream or create content effectively within virtual reality, it also allows them to be more connected to their audience. It makes sense for the game developer to be happy with you guys because you're bringing more eyeballs to their game, more people to purchase. It makes sense to me for the virtual reality headset creators to be interested in your company because you're driving more people ultimately to purchase. And it also makes sense for the end user to be involved because they are actively able to get engaged. And then it makes sense for Twitch TV or YouTube or any other content service because, like you said, it's something different than Fortnite. It's adding something else. So for you, it's not requiring people to leave what they're currently doing and sign up and only stream on Live TV or, or, you know, essentially deactivate their Twitch. Twitter or LinkedIn or whatever else account to you know pay attention to you. Um, and an article I posted today showed that the average um, the average millennial has 9.8, 9.5 to nine point eight total social media accounts. So maybe they don't want another one. So I'd love to to learn a bit from you about you know how you decided to sit there in that value chain. Are you looking to change in the future? You know, add any more services? Are you looking to compete with YouTube or Twitch and host your own content? Like like how does that work?
1: Yeah, this is a really big topic. Um, I think the best way to break it down is to start thinking a little bit about what are you trying to do, right? So, so first things actually talking about platforms. If you want to build a platform with multiple stakeholders like we have, we have essentially three stakeholders: developers, streamers, and viewers. Um, generally speaking, you need to have a sustain—you need to have sustainable access or almost a competitive access to one of those stakeholders. In other words, you need to really, really help one stakeholder, um, mm. and that's a really good framework because the way we've always approached it before we even had ambitions to being a company is: how do we help streamers make content? And that's a really good place to be because you're adding value from day one. And I think that's where plugin companies, or as we call tools companies, really, uh, thrive is there is sort of a a loop between you and your user where you're, where people are happy with you, to put it simply. And people are happy they tend to talk about you. Only talk about you, more people join. Um, so in our case, that's always been streamers. We always ask ourselves for every feature and every large project that we think about, we always ask ourselves, does this help our streamers? Um, in a, in a monetary way, we ask, are streamers making more money? And from a product perspective, that looks like, are we increasing engagement or eyeballs for viewers or for streamers? And if the answer is yes, then it's generally a good idea for us. So on that note, you know, we've spent the last three and a half years building tools for streamers and building tools for developers. Developers now come to live because they know it's a sureproof way to drive more eyeballs, like you said. And there's that small chance of going super viral, uh, like Beat Saber did. Streamers come to us because it just creates a better streaming experience for their viewers. And then on the viewer side, what we've done so far is said, Hey, go to Twitch or go to YouTube and watch these videos and you'll see something you haven't seen before. And sometime mid last year, we asked ourselves, now that our streamers have, you know, tens of thousands of people watching them, sometimes millions of people on YouTube, um, and, and tens of streamers, tens of thousands on Twitch, What's the next step for us? So you have a bunch of eyeballs. It's thanks to live that you have all these eyeballs. What can we now do to help you drive more revenue from your viewers as they're watching you in real time? And that takes us back to, uh, when we were streamers, we used to always think about it as we'd love to have more ways to interact with our streamer, uh, with our viewers in real time. And, and if you look at some of the most innovative streamers, I mean, I love Sushi Dragon is amazing. If you guys haven't seen Sushi Dragon, he's basically macroed 140 keys to his body. With like, uh, Velcro, and he's just real time wow. doing a show. Um, another guy that I love, one of my favorite streamers is Mr. Lama SC, who is a Diablo 2 streamer, one of the world's best Diablo 2 speedrunners. And he has something that he does once a month called Man vs. Stream, where once a month he's built up essentially a little plugin for Diablo 2 with his mods, where viewers can donate money and impact the stream in one way or the other. So for example, you can donate $5 and he might have to wear an oven mitt on one hand to play or he might have to flip his keyboard around or he might dim the screen, all kinds of fun ways to sort of mess with your favorite streamer. And I think that's really, uh, for what what it's worth, what he sees is during that day in the month, he makes more revenue than he does all month from subscriptions and donations. So people are yearning for ways to interact with their favorite streamer. And our intuition was, if we give people ways to interact with their favorite streamer in real time on a live stream, will they use it? You know, our gut said yes, but we had no proof on it. So we ran two experiments with Beat Saber. This was in august 2018 the first experiment was called beat bits which was if you donate a certain amount of bits we'll take the name of the donator a bunch of visual effects and particle effects and put them inside beat saber cubes so when the streamer slices the cubes the name of the donator pops up with like really cool uh, effects so that's sort of a, a visual dopamine way of rewarding people for doing what they're already doing which is donating bits Mm -hmm. Um, And the other one we did was beat bombs, which was if you go into a Beat Saber stream using live and you type exclamation mark bomb, then we'll replace a Beat Saber cube with a Beat Saber bomb. It's sort of a pay to troll system without payment, just to see how people would react to it. And people love it. And in 120 days, our streamers are making seven times more revenue per minute from donations alone, not counting extra subs and, and followers. In other words, give people more ways to interact and they will use them. And if it's something that hinders the streamer it's okay as long as you're getting paid in other words if you're not getting paid it's griefing if you're getting paid it's fun yeah it makes sense
0: yeah yeah it makes sense and you know i guess it makes perfect sense what you're saying is that there's like like breaking it down and, and repeating part of what you're saying is there's three major stakeholders that are in play here which is the developer game developer slash publisher the streamer and the viewer and you're always asking yourself who's the champion of that and who am I providing the most value to which is the streamer and making sure that you keep them happy throughout the whole process and I think even taking like a real big step back and, and this is something that brought up in Seth Godin's book who's a kind of a god when it comes to marketing and I just listened to his book on Audible his latest one recently talking about how so many people are so this happens a lot in esports too so many people are so captivated about their millionth fan And, you know, the millionth person who's going to like their product and become involved, and they're not worrying about the first five or the Mm -hmm. first 50. And I think that's one thing that through that discussion that you just went through is exactly what you guys have done, is you've said, you know, who are our first streamers that are using the platform? How can we make them the most excited to bring in others and to bring in viewers? And how can we test things to ensure that they get the most value out of what we're doing? And it seems like it's an absolute no-brainer then for them to use your product. You know, it's, it provides them with more revenue, like you said, seven times more revenue up to. Um, it provides them with a better experience for their viewers, so likely to get more followers and such. And it provides them with a way to make alternate content that they're not fighting against all of the Fortnite or Overwatch or, you know, Counter Strike streamers that exist in the current market right now. So, what, what are the gaps? What are you, what are you working on? What are you trying to fix? Cause, you know, no, no company is ever solved and no company ever has enough talent to go around
1: so yes i mean especially the talent side. Like, you know this because we came to you to see if we could hire more people uh which yeah. by the way i encourage you guys to talk to chris uh you guys have a really cool organization <laughs> set up there um he hasn't paid me i promise i'm just saying because it's true. Uh, <laughs> not, yet. not yet not yet exactly so uh, where's the gaps there's a bunch of gaps right like the, there's so much work to be done when it comes to live streaming and i think I think one thing that's really important to say is if you want people to switch to your platform, what you have to provide is meaningfully better. There's a saying out there, 10 times better. If it's not 10 times better, if it's just marginally better, people won't switch even if it is better. Um, So a good example is caffeine or mixer. They're struggling because... Why would you switch to caffeine um, yeah. if you're already on Twitch? It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't matter if you have more lower latency or it's easier to get set up. I already have a workflow as a streamer. I don't need to switch, which is also why we don't want to replace OBS for now, because you already have OBS. We don't we don't need to redo OBS. We can lay, use it for now. Now, where does it lack? So in order to answer that, I want to take a little step back, which is to think a little bit about where Twitch is and where Twitch came from. So a lot of the people watching us will probably know this intimately, but to give a quick recap, Twitch started out as Justin TV back in 2006. It was Justin Khan, who I spoke to recently, actually, it was a really interesting conversation, but it was Justin yeah. Khan with a bunch of modems in his backpack and a camera strapped to his forehead. And the novelty, the innovation was, I can sit at home and watch his screen while he's coding. And that's been largely the experience for me as a viewer for 14 years. And we're in 2020 now. 2020? 2020, yes. We're 2020. Um, And it's been 14 years, and I go on Twitch today, and I am watching a passive stream. And what we realized when we ran our interaction experiments is there's really two things missing. One is a platform that's built around interactivity. Not Mm -hmm. shallow interactivity like paying some currency to slap a sticker on the screen, but interactivity a la Hunger Games, where you're really less watching a live stream and you're watching a live game show and the streamer is the tribute he or she is the host of the show and the viewers of the people at home impacting the show really meaningfully and in order to do that really well i think you need to approach the consumption site kind of like people approach games today in other words you're really not building a live streaming site you're building a game we kind of think of it as building a large-scale mmo for live gaming spectatorship and so the question really then becomes, what are the aspects of games that we love that lack in live gaming spectatorship today? Well, one of those things is progression. To quote EA, you need a sense of pride and accomplishment when you're playing a game. In other words, you need to be able to, if I am Chris's superfan and I've spent hours on end interacting and watching you, I should look like a superfan, I should feel like a superfan, and most importantly, everyone else should be able to tell that I'm a super fan." So that's one big aspect. The other one is finding out the ways where interactivity doesn't impact gameplay necessarily. So through cosmetics. So one thing I wish I could show on stream right now is uh, using lift technology. You can actually overlay assets on top of the streamer in ways that almost look like it's um, like armor. So I can put a helmet on you. I can put shoulder pads on you. I can put fl- flaming fire effects around your hands, and it's all like really high fidelity AR filters, almost just in 3D space. Uh, and so one of the things we're doing there is allowing viewers a- to activate assets on top of their streamers, and down the line, allowing brands to activate assets on top of their streamers. As an example, if you're uh, Red Bull and you want to reach the Gen Z audience that's downstream of Chris's stream, well, you would go to one of our streamers, you'd give them a bounty and say, if you were a digital Red Bull backpack on your stream for 10,000 hours, then we'll pay X, Y, or Z, Right. Um, and that's sort of a non-intrusive way of doing what I think sort of experiential activations for brands in streams themselves in world. Mm. Um, and then the last thing is if you are giving people a place to go to interact, the, the interactions themselves have to be juicy and rich. So you don't go to a game today and you press a button and nothing happens. You know, there is visual feedback, there is button mechanics, there is state changes, there is visuals and audio. There's all that stuff that we expect from games that we haven't quite applied to the platform side of things. And I think that's where we really want to come in. We want to take the tools that we've built, which is capturing and creation tools for streamers, developer tools for developers. And now we want to build a platform on top that allows viewers to meaningfully interact with those two stakeholders that we've already helped out. And I think that's where Liv is going for 2020 onwards. I say, like, I know that's where we're going. We'll just have to <laughs> see what the form factor looks like once we get there by the end of this year.
0: The janitor has spoken. There you go. We'll see. Yeah. Look, as as with many of the other stuff that, that we've talked about, I like it. And it it makes perfect sense to me about allowing people to become truly involved in what's going on, and like you were saying, that in the past it's been either you're fighting through the chat. That Shroud, we we'll use him as an example again. Will hopefully read your message, then you're donating five dollars to read out a text to speech on stream that comes up as a as a gif of some sort of graphic, hoping that he'll read it, or you're trying to pay for a VIP to go to a meetup or something like that. But still, you're not, you're not, you're not really, you're not fully interacting, right? You're just begging for this person's attention the whole time. And it makes sense that, you know, maybe you should be properly involved. There's actually an app that um, Shaggy, who's probably watching this or w- will be later, um, in, from an investment and management company called Cred. And he he tagged me on Twitter the other day that just shut down. It was called HQ and it was by one of the founders of Vine.
1: And oh, yeah, they shut down what, yesterday.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of what you're saying seemed to be perfect aligned with this app and I'm not exactly sure why it shut down but for those people who are watching essentially it's a game show on your phone and everybody can play so they have a live host just like any game show does it goes live at a particular time just like any game show does except instead of you yelling at the people on the screen about wheel of fortune or deal or no deal telling people to take or or leave it you can actually do it yourself on your phone Live and feel like you're part of that, and actually win money, you know, for participating, and that makes perfect sense, you know, to get people actively involved. I've I've seen a few startups too that are trying to do ones where you can uh, participate in sport and help to change things that are happening on the field. Uh, one of my good friends, Carl Flores, one of the co-founders of Unicorn, you know, founded yep. uh, even a bingo. Um, company and app before as well. Where you could go to a Counter Strike tournament, and as things happen, you could tick off on your bingo and win prizes. Mm-hmm. They've got some other cool stuff coming too around interactivity that I don't, I don't think I can say. But a lot of it, and that seems to be like a, a quite a common thread and a common trend for me that seems to make perfect sense. And you know, I kind of repeating back really with with you know alternate examples to exactly what you said, but getting people actively involved in what they're watching. You know, we've seen the beginnings of that with people donating money to get attention and such. But I think that, you know, it makes perfect sense to me that these are the next steps. And for me, when I joined Nacy's stream, before I knew anything about you, before I really knew anything about Beat Saber, I could have been friends with Nacy for a while and I saw that you could type exclamation mark bomb in stream and I could send a literal bomb to her in the game that if she hit it would, you know, deduct points. That was that was mind-blowing for me. I was like, what the hell? Like, I, as a person, can actually interact in the game and, you know, help something, you know, take place.
1: Yeah. There's a couple of companies like HQ. There's a company called Ripcord, Ripcord of TV that do exactly the same thing. I think one one of the big concerns that happens when you let people win games is you get what we call financial speculators, people who are trying to win the money as opposed to play the game. Um, yeah. And so you, you, you know, quickly for H2 what happened was your average payouts ended up being a couple of cents every game because you got a bunch of cheaters in there. Um, so yeah. you have two people sitting, one is Googling, the other person is playing, right? Um, it's, it's yeah. really ha- easy to hack it once you have money in there. Um, mm. so that's one of the concerns. The other one, that, one of the other one worth looking at is life penalty. Um, they take, uh, people, there's a, there's a real goalkeeper in front of a real goal. With a big screen behind it. And then people at home for every shot that a machine takes is this custom built machine that shoots balls. Everyone gets to vote where the ball should go. And then it takes a a average vector of that of those positions and it shoots the ball there. And then it tells you who was like the best vote. It's super smart, right? I think we're not unique in, I think everyone who spent time watching live streams has to a certain extent felt this a little bit. So we're not, we're not unique in our insights. I think what we're really going to show people how to do it is on the execution side and then providing a platform for everyone who wants to build interactive games to do it in a way that actually is is meaningful for the viewers, in a way that's fun to play around with. Um, and then one thing worth mentioning is we're never, ever going to tell our streams not stream anywhere else. Um, I think what we are doing is not really competing with Twitch, is more providing a completely different experience. So if you want to just stream on Twitch and use some of our cosmetic stuff, cool do it. You'll still make more money. We'll still be able to make money from it. But if you want to host a custom game show with high production value, then you come to live and we set it up with you.
0: One of the other things that makes sense that came out in our first meeting together was that a lot of problem that all these esports companies are having so far who are making any sort of product is is onboarding users. And then after that, they have a problem with stickiness. Mm -hmm. It seems that that is kind of removed for you guys, because if you're a VR streamer, you'd Probably have to be an idiot not to use Live at the moment, um, and once you use it, if you are making you know up to seven x the revenue, like you said, you'd have to be crazy to leave uh, until like a you know a solid competitor comes along. So as a you know as a startup as a, as a company, what are your roadblocks? What's what's stopping you from you know your world domination as Doctor Doom?
1: Yeah, um, you're all beneath me, peasants. No, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so. Good question. I think for us, it's we're 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 still trying to build the best product on the market. Um, we're sort of kind of alone right now. The Facebook has built their own internal solution, and they've also been using Lyft for all their trailers. So like, we're sort of working with Facebook and also a little bit against each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but our biggest roadblock is always talent. Um, we are we just hired two people, I mentioned to you before the podcast, both are brilliant. Uh, we're 16 people to date, once the last person who's Australian is joining. So we're now across three time zones, so we're going to have to rethink distributed work completely, because we're distributed today, but across two time zones. Yeah. Wow. Um, but talent's always hard, and then it's really execution. This is why I don't feel concerned at all about sharing this with anyone online or in person about exactly what we're doing and how we're doing it, because at the end of the day, I think we're going to build it better than anyone, and... It just, we know how hard it is to do it. And we have some really smart people on the team. We've been doing it for a while. So I think it's partly that. And then there's also, we're kind of pegged to the growth of VR. Not really. Like we we don't need everyone to wear a VR headset to interact in a stream. That's sort of one of our beauties. Um, but we still need people to care about VR. So, uh, and we see this by ourselves, as VR grows, we get more streamers. Um, so I think that fits really well with our timeline because we're sort of a year out before a beta of the platform and three years out before I would say we're in V1, roughly, if we're going to think about all the features that we want to have in there. And that's a really good timeline for VR too. I think three years when we're going to start seeing sort of 50 million headsets on the market, five years when you and your mother have a VR headset. Um, and and that that's sort of all we're going to be playing in if that answers your question. Hmm.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So there's, there's always this talk about like VR versus AR as well. Do you, do you mm. see them as competitors? Do you see them as su- like uh, right, right now you're supplementing, right? You are saying you've got your streamers who are using VR, but you've got AR applications like the armor and, and you know, the bomb and this kind of stuff you can, you can chuck onto them. So how do you see them coexisting or, or fighting?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's so, there's such big terms, right? I think everyone tries to, there's like people love to take sides, like AR or VR, red versus blue. And it's it's kind of frustrating sometimes because it's not that black and white. Um, Mm -hmm. Long, long term. Like uh, r- before we plug in straight to the head, but way after we have shitty form factor that we are today, I think AR and VR will probably be about the same device. Like you'll wear something really nice and comfortable that has like a VR mode and then has a pass through mode. In other mm-hmm. words, I don't necessarily think this might be the final form factor unless it's a, a, a utility only product. I think it'll be something like a very, very comfortable ski goggle. That has great cameras that, when you turn them on, it feels like you're just using your real eyes, kind of like pass through an Oculus Quest, but times ten. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, one of my favorite quotes by Mark Andreessen from Andreessen Horowitz. They're some of the uh, most well-known investors, VCs in the world. And his take was, and it's usually a contrarian take, is he thinks VR is going to be a hundred or a thousand times larger than AR. And the reason he says that is because most people live in shitty places in the world like most people don't live in a place like i'm gonna say san francisco even though san francisco has a bunch of issues on its own i've lived there for many years but most people don't live in a place where you have access to all this cool stuff mm-hmm. and so vr is a great way for those people to take themselves transport themselves to places where they have more joy or more experiences um, yeah, okay. but besides that i think ar is largely gonna be utilitarian I want maps, I want recommendations, I want mm-hmm. math help, whatever it is. You know, things that we do today on the phone is going to be eventually transported to your glasses. Um, mm-hmm. And VR is largely going to be experiences mm. that are uh, high on immersion. Uh, games, yeah. movies, uh, interactive experiences, uh, things like that. Even things like memories. I think at some point we're going to see some really interesting like memory mapping uh, apps that allow you to both relive your own memories and maybe even... Uh, uh, not upload like through the brain but like store your own memories in a way we're seeing some cool stuff with a company called um where dreams go i highly encourage you guys to, to check that out
0: yeah well it sounds uh Sounds pretty Black Mirror-esque. <laughs> that yes. story did, of Ray Flag and you know, everything.
1: Did you see that uh, very Black Mirror-esque thing? They were using Lyft for it. There's a Korean lady. Her daughter had passed away a couple of years ago. And they had reconstructed yeah. the daughter in VR. And now she had to go and, like, go meet her again. And they were filming it. Yeah. It, was, it was heartbreaking. Yeah, but it's very, no very there. Black mirror <laughs>
0: Yeah, I chose not to watch that video because some of that stuff scares the shit out of me. And being someone that works in technology, um, yeah, some of those some of those things look like a recipe for disaster. But it was yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it was definitely an interesting video. So what's, I mean, what's what's next for you guys? So it, it sounds like you've got, You've got scale there, you know, as a company. Obviously, you're, you're plugged into multi different levels. But where does the where does the billion dollar company come from out of this? Are you on that path right now? Do you need to gain more ownership of things because it seems like at the moment you don't necessarily have ownership of anyone?
1: Yeah, uh, ownership is an interesting question because it's like it come, it's a gradient, right? Like how much of something or someone do you own? Um, mm-hmm. I think I think for us, so we're definitely moving towards a platform. We think there is. A next generation of live streaming, and we don't think it's based on incrementally or even a lot improving the this latency or the stream quality. I think that's already solved. We don't need more pixels or faster pixels. What we mm-hmm. need is a different consumption experience. I think that's what we'll provide. If our experiments are indicating anything, um, it is that people want to interact, and we can. I believe we can ten x revenue from interactions because the interactions we built so far were built in a weekend for a game. Um, mm-hmm so so i think i think there is going to be a market for live streaming is already big there's going to be a market for interactive live streaming i think it's going to be a multi-billion dollar market um dozens of billions of dollars of market actually um and that's where we're heading um, i also think there's something to be said about letting that be sort of the secondary thought and i hate no investors hate to hear this um, but as long as again as long as we focus on providing the most value to streamers um, and developers I think everything else follows. Developers will come to us if we have all the streamers. Viewers go wherever the streamers are. And mm-hmm. if streamers are happy, sort of the ecosystem follows. And that's going to be our focus moving forward always. Yeah, well, like like back to what you
0: were saying before, I want to touch on that again, is um, Mixer and Caffeine and such as you know, position in the market. And, and I think it makes sense to me what you were saying. I, I feel like a lot of the time Mixer's marketing strategies, we're Twitch but we're not. Um, and, and caffeine seems to be kind of similar as well. And, you know, it goes back to the, the rant that I've had many a time about people trying to launch a new social platform, like why would people stop using Twitter or Instagram or whatever else to use yours? Um, and, and it makes sense like what, like what you were saying is that, you know, maybe these guys don't provide enough of a point of difference and, and that's where you're trying to do something else, right? So it seems to me that you're trying to capture the, you know, you're trying to capture the hearts and minds of the streamers first because if you look at where the market is right now, you know, it's the large content creators that own everything, you know, they're the ones that Facebook are reportedly paying anywhere from 200k to a million per year to come over plus signing bonuses, you know, caffeine is, is fiending for people, you know, YouTube is signing on, you know, laser beam and muse elk and, you know, courage JD and and whoever else. So it seems like the power is in those and, and they have just, they just have so much power. I mean, what, like, Laser beam out of his out of a bedroom with one manager and one editor who probably gets paid 50 bucks a video like a lot of them do, gets 170 million views per month on YouTube alone, which is more than like most TV channels in Australia, and these TV channels take how many employees do they have? You know, 12 executives when there's the night news on there's you know kind of two anchors and four reporters and there's 15 people on the cameras and someone's writing a script and holding a teleprompter and you know josh dubb using your example before does it out of his bedroom being hilarious with a couple of his mates um it doesn't you know doesn't require those overheads to do so so you know it makes sense to me that you're aligning with those creators and figuring out you know your point of difference what they what they actually want and that's and that's super basic, right? For any startup, it's like, why would someone want to use your company when you need to have a point of difference?
1: Yeah, there's two things to what you're saying that I think are really important. One is, if your last, if if your if your acquisition method is paying for people, then it's a race to the bottom because there's always someone who can pay more eventually. So, mm-hmm. you know, Mixer buying uh, Ninja is a great idea. But if you're not going to do anything with the acquisition, if he's just going to stream then eventually you're kind of the the price is going to keep going up, and you're racing to the bottom. So it's a terrible idea, I think. Um, Mixer also had an incredible opportunity to rethink live sh- live streaming because Mixer came out of Beam.io, and Beam.io was all about interactivity. So they should have done what we want to do, and they aren't. And it's, it blows my mind every time I think about it because they have Ninja. Like, if you build a custom experience around Ninja, you could change how people think about live streaming and get the usage immediately. But they're not. I hope mm-hmm. they're listening because I want someone to do it. On the on like a, on like a philosophical level, I think people yeah. like we we all think about live streaming and live streamers as this incredible thing and it's growing. But I think people still underestimate it. And the perfect example of this is PewDiePie. So I'm from Sweden and PewDiePie is Swedish. That's why I use the example. In Sweden, we have about 10 million people, 9 million officially with, with, with a bit of extra. So it says 10 million people. PewDiePie has a hundred million subs. So PewDiePie by objective numbers is 10 times larger than Sweden, right? And. I would venture out and say that if PewDiePie was to have a, a nation and he asked people to come out and vote, more people would vote in PewDiePie's nation than people are voting in Sweden or the US, proportionally speaking. And so mm-hmm. someone like PewDiePie actually has geo like geopolitical impact, like world impact. He can make things, he can shape people's minds and thoughts. And he, ha- he definitely has. And that's why he's been in so much, I think... Uh, in so so in so many risky situations when he said things as a gamer at home and he's impacted mm. people on world scale. So I think like the future kingmakers, and it's kinda of dystopian in a way, if it's done poorly, is these people at home who who people are paying attention to. And they're going to have a Mm -hmm. lot more say in how people think and what people do than we give them credit for today, even as we are looking at esports and and streaming as this giant thing. I think it's only going to get bigger. It's going to get very nutty in the next 20 years.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's it's reinforced by things like, say, FaZe Clan, you know, with their first meetup, first public meetup during the Fortnite World Cup. It was 16 city blocks the line was to see them, and the police shut it down. And then a few days later, they did another one in California with, like, one of their creators. I think it was Rug. 3,000, 4,000 kids turned up in, like, 40 degrees Celsius, like 110-degree Fahrenheit heat. Once again, the cops shut it down because they were trying to knock down the barriers because they were so fanatical. I think you're right. You know, these, these people watch these creators all the time. And I, I love seeing um, behind the eyes the brain working of senior people, politicians, business people starting to understand that when, you know, I I went through a period of time talking to a bunch of local politicians here in in my state um, about gaming and and saying, hey, there's there's this massive rival between Melbourne, where I am, and Sydney, which is in New South Wales up north. There's a massive fight. Sydney has slightly more population. Melbourne's set to overtake them, but the two states hate each other. The The two cities hate each other. And trying to say to them, hey, let's get some esports stuff happening in Melbourne, and now we're thankfully the home of esports, so we win, thanks to government support. But you know, talking to this one leader of the opposition party, a guy called Matthew Guy, and I could see it working in his brain when he said, when I was trying to explain to him how large gaming is and how impactful it is on younger audiences. And and then he started saying, my son plays Minecraft and he wakes up at 6am every Thursday to watch, I think it was Dan TDM's release. And he goes, maybe that is influential for my kid, because otherwise he never wakes up that early. And then every single time that all of his friends come over, they all want to play Minecraft. So maybe Minecraft has some sort of impacts on these kids and it's not just that silly game that they're interested in it's the new you know Mike Tyson where the whole you know, the world stops to watch him fire if they don't care about boxing. You know, it's the new space, um, you know, the new moon landing from the, from the Apollo, from the US and, and such, where, you know, the whole nation stops to watch the first man walk on the moon. That happens now once a week for these kids, for these adults who are watching these creators. They're standing by for those Monday, Wednesday, Friday releases from PewDiePie or their favorite beauty blogger. They're buying their products. They're following into events because, it, you know, a way to explain these influences today is, is their, they're almost everything that a movie star isn't like a movie star had such an allure because they come out for their one big blockbuster a year, you know, one every two years and they go off into their mountain with their hundreds of millions of dollars. And you never hear from them again, except for maybe some sort of TMZ thing. Maybe they've, you know, done something stupid and, and they've been exposed or god forbid they've put on three kilos of weight and they're at the right, beach right, right. The or something like that but now it's the opposite you know these creators like jade who uh, who i know quite well on tiktok makes like up to seven pieces of content per day across four different platforms she's on linkedin she's on twitter she's doing two to three tiktoks tiktok live streams every day and instagram stories non-stop because People want that access. But with that access, like you said, comes the influence and the power and and people start modeling themselves after them. They change their purchasing habits. And, you know, I think it was a really good analogy from you. And we're probably gonna cut that into a clip about PewDiePie, you know, with his with his hundred million followers. Because, you know, as the most subscribed person on the planet on YouTube and, and for a while the largest subscribed channel, you are right. He has some insane power that Possibly isn't being respected. And, you know, does someone like PewDiePie have as much or more power than a world leader does who's leading a country? Um, Probably, you know, with the amount of dollars that someone like this can command now or, you know, let's say 10, 10 years into the future, when, you know, you it's it's not uncommon for channels to have ten to hundred million subscribers. Just like with YouTube today, it seems very common that a channel will have a million subscribers. A million isn't really an achievement anymore. You know, yes, it is an achievement, but on the global scale compared to all the other creators, there's so many channels at 100k or a million it doesn't mean as much but what happens when you know this more technology adoption happens india gets more technology africa gets more technology and you've got channels all over the world that have 10 to 100 million subscribers and they're commanding these massive budgets of fox and such who are getting hundreds of millions of dollars a year in revenue what happens when that goes to one person whose face is on a video on youtube or lives new platform every monday wednesday friday
1: Yeah, and a good way to think about it is I think you and I are in the generation where we have sort of one foot in each world. We grew up in a world where sort of smartphones weren't a thing. We still had GSM phones. We still Mm went, imagine the same for you. We still went outside to play, and we also played games. So we grew up together with it. And I watch esports religiously, and I watch live streams. Like I have a tab open when I work, pretty much. That's how it's my companionship. Um, But my grandfather is a good example. He still listens to the radio. That's his thing. And it's not because the radio is the best shit out there. We know it's not. There's better content. It's richer content. But it's because he is used to listening to the radio. And so I think as our generation grows up, we're going to see two things. One is we're going to see a wide expansion of the gaming market. So we're going to start seeing games expand into the upper echelons, the population pyramid. But then also... Similarly, I'm gonna continue watching esports when I get old, just like my grandfather watches some sports, you know. And I, th- I think that's where it's gonna get really nutty when you start seeing f- live gaming spectatorship go throughout the entire population pyramid. And Pew- someone like PewDiePie goes from hundred to half a billion. I mean mm. if you think about it, PewDiePie is a third of the US population, just under. That's crazy. I mm-hmm. guarantee you he gets more votes if he had a, had a had a vote online. I mean, it's just it it gets so nutty once you think about. it. And then with great power comes great responsibility. And what happens when someone like PewDiePie turns into Lex Luthor? And now you got Lex Luthor with half a billion people on on YouTube watching him, and he's telling people all kinds of crazy shit. Uh, I, it, it, you know, it, it's gonna be it's gonna be an interesting period yeah. coming up.
0: Some people would call that Lex Luthor. Uh, probably Jake Paul or maybe a word of poetry.
1: <laughs> so maybe they don't exist.
0: Right, right. exist. With a bit you know. less hair,
1: got to shave their yeah, hair exactly.
0: exactly. But no, it makes sense what you're saying. You know, I, I believe that, you know, our generation is the last generation of non-gamers. You know, I know people who I went to high school with who they love the footy, they love listening to radio, and they love watching traditional TV. But you look at the numbers, you know, the old Gen Zs and, and the new, is it Gen X that's after Gen Z? I think something like that. You know, they're not they're not consuming in the same ways anymore. Like you said, you know, they're on their phones all the time. They're consuming YouTube and, you know, talking to some of my friends who have kids, you know, their kids are gobsmacked when they watch traditional TV that there's, they're like, there's ads and I can't skip them. And there's four or five in a row. And, you know, even I'm experiencing that now, my girlfriend's becoming obsessed with married at first sight, you know, which is on traditional TV channel seven. And I'm like, I get to watch six minutes of content and I have five ads like, this is ridiculous. You know, you're not used to that on Twitch. People go bananas when you have to watch a 30-second pre-roll before you can watch a stream for six hours, <laughs> let have. alone, you know, yeah, putting those ads in. So, you know, I think I waffled on a bit, but, you know, I really do think that, you know, our generation is the last generation of non-gamers, like you were saying, and people are changing the ways that they consume this stuff. And what does that power mean? And what do they do with it when you're PewDiePie? And like you said, you've got half a billion subscribers potentially in the future. That's crazy.
1: Yeah, and what do we as a platform provider do with it? I think that's the other thing that's happening now is rethinking what Twitter's responsibility and YouTube's responsibility really is. Again, we should not get into that conversation because that is a long conversation. Yeah, that's a can of
0: worms. That's a can of worms. So no let me ask you this question then. So people people usually say to me, Chris, who's winning in the market right now? Who's ma- Who's making money and who's doing it well? I think for me, the obvious answers are, A, the publishers, such game developers, you know, Epic Games making $3 billion profit last year, you know, Riot um, and, and uh, Valve, you know, churning, making money hand over fist, and the creators are making a lot of money right now, you know, un- unending case studies of a girl selling literally her bathwater as a meme, but making a couple hundred thousand dollars profit out of that, um, about, you know, creators I know who have seven-figure incomes from simply selling limited, edition hoodies every few weeks off a couple hundred thousand followers people like phase you know bringing five six thousand kids to a meetup they're making a lot of money so what's what's next or am i am i missing any other categories and it seems to me like you're saying platforms is is one of the places
1: yeah i think i mean platforms inherently they sort of where wherever the eyeballs go those platforms have a lot of power the other question is profitability it's you know it costs a lot to have a platform like youtube so you need to make sure it it actually pays yeah. off um but i think you you're spot on the money with terms of the in terms of the stakeholders. Um, I think for VR specifically, we'll start seeing uh, more traditional publishers and game developers come into the market and try their luck. And also, it's going to be a really good market for indie developers. I think you can get really far as an indie developer in, in VR because the bar is a bit lower. You don't have to make an indie game that's like Noita or something where you know you have to work on it for many years and provide a really excellent experience. Not saying people shouldn't provide excellent experiences, uh, but it's just like people are expecting less and it's an untested market. Um, so you can get away with experimental stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I think companies like Epic are going to continue doing it. I think Fortnite is going to run its seasons or chapters as they call it um, and continue building it as a service as are many of the other games now sort of turning into services. Mm-hmm. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how that sort of what the next iteration of that is. Cause that is a, I would say a pretty new thing, all things considered.
0: Yeah. And another thing I was thinking about you guys that you offer, um, you know, just, just as you were saying that, you know, a lot of people want to make a company saying esports team who's reliant primarily on revenue from sponsorship and, you know, it makes me feel bad <laughs> anytime someone says that because relying on sponsorship is so fickle. You're really you're really relying on your relationship with another person. Marketing in this industry is always or every industry is always the first thing to be cut, you know, when there's a downturn. Everyone wants to cut out the spend. Um, because a lot of the time sales are sales are the golden children because they make the money, but marketing is the devil because they spend the money. So you know, what happens to YouTube when something like the adpocalypse happens, which we should happen once again, tied to PewDiePie um, in a large way, and you know, the money starts drying up? It seems that you guys offer another way, I guess, to weather that storm a little bit, an alternate money stream, not only for the creators, but for yourself through this interactivity, through your donations and such. So, I, I guess my roundabout question for this is what, what happens to you if YouTube decides to implement? you know, all of the things that you're doing. Can they do it bigger, better, faster than you guys? uh, Or do you think you're safe?
1: Yeah, I don't think they can do it faster or better than us. They just have a lot of tech debt with how sort of the YouTube infrastructure is built. Same with Twitch. They have the extensions program, but it's very limited. We know that because we consume their APIs ourselves. Um, Hmm. So I don't think there's like a tech issue. I think they would more look at it as if we want to go, you know, Two feet into interactivity, let's think about buying live, and then we have a choice of yes or no. So that's not a big of a risk to us, I think. Yeah. We don't look at it that way. I think I think for us it's we have a really clear idea of what the form factor should be like. Uh, We think, we think that we think about it differently. So even if someone was to try and do it, they would, it would taste differently if they did it than if we did it. Um, and one of the benefits we have is that we have a really big user base to actually try this on and have them tell us what they think works and doesn't work. So we don't have Mm -hmm. to be as theory and sort of foresightful as, as some might think because we can just test it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So we've been, we've been waffling on for a while now. So I want to ask, you know, what's, what's, what's coming up next for you and leaving the short term? In the next three, six, twelve months.
1: Yes. So we have for developers on the in the chat, if there are any, we have a new SDK coming out that's going to drive uh, really meaningful changes to how we do both compositing. Um, so if people don't know, we put real people inside games or avatars inside games. That's how you film yourself. So better compositing, and then some uh, some 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 scaffolding for better interactivity. Um, and then this year is all about running experiments on interactivity, really rich experiments on interactivity. So taking our experiments from Beat Saber. And turning them into bite-sized experiments, but with the with the richness and the impactfulness that we always have had in mind. Uh, and then, lastly, is cosmetics. I think we're gonna do something that people have never seen before with cosmetics, um, and it's gonna change how people think about cosmetics in the context of a live stream. And it's gonna be amazing. And stream is gonna make a, excuse my French, but a fuck ton of money. <laughs>
0: Fantastic, man. Well, you know, I think it's—I think it's no secret to you or anyone else that's watching. I, re- I really enjoy what you guys are doing. I think you're, you know, I think you're on to a lot of great things here. It it makes sense throughout the whole value chain for people to use your product. And yeah, I can't wait to see what you guys come up with next.
1: Awesome. Thank you for having me on, Chris. I appreciate it.
0: No worries, man. Thank you. And thanks to everyone who's watching either live on Twitch, LinkedIn, or listening to this podcast later. We've got a bunch more people coming from various parts of the industry, so I can't wait to share them with you. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning into our podcast today. For show notes, relevant links, and upcoming projects, you can check us out online at BigEsports.gg or follow us on our social medias at BigEsports underscore GG.